0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been here, and uh, I'm sure um, you all enjoyed that break as well. Um, we're going to start today in 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, in just a second. And we'll talk about uh, why we're there in just a minute. But uh, we're starting a new series today called Theosaurus. Theosaurus. Yes, it's based on the word thesaurus. But it's a mix of the word for God, and thesaurus. Do you all remember what a thesaurus was in high school when you wanted to sound fancy on your papers, like you knew what you were talking about? So you'd go and find that extra word that would describe it just right. Um, Actually, what we probably ended up doing was describing it with words that uh, that made us sound like we were trying too hard. Um, A thesaurus is like a dictionary, but it gives extra words. It technically means... A treasury or storehouse of words. The technical term is a treasury or storehouse of words. It helps us, a thesaurus, helps us define what words mean in various contexts. Today we begin um, a pretty cool series. It's a sporadic series called Theosaurus. And uh, Theosaurus is not a type of dinosaur. So, um, Theosaurus is a sporadic series, meaning we're not going to be doing it for a long period of time. We'll do it a couple weeks at a time here, a couple weeks at a time there, as the calendar permits. Um, Because sometimes we might need a a week or two to fit into various uh, places in the calendar. I think it's a a good series for us. Because it's about being able to define some of these big fancy God words that we grow up hearing and learning some about. It's about being able to communicate fascinating, deep, crazy terms about God to the world. The series' goal in Theoris for us, Theosaurus here, is to define God words so that we can have language to express deep truth at the ready. If you haven't yet passed out the handouts, there are handouts in the center aisles there uh, for the sermon. And we'll be filling those in along the way. Those handouts are those blue sheets of paper there. And that first, that first blank there in the handout is the word language. Because the goal for us in this series, in Theosaurus, is that we can define these God words so that we can have language to express deep truth at the ready. I want to answer for just a second before we get into the passage. Why a series about words? I mean, why are we bothering with a whole series about big fancy God words that many of us have probably grown up hearing time and time again. Simply stated, we want to uh, look at a series on words because we are stewards of God words. We are stewards of language and truth about God. If you want to spell steward, I spell it this way, S-T-E-W-O-R-D, steward. We, We take care of words. And that's some of our calling as believers, to be keepers of words in Scripture that communicate truth about God. Now, it's not as if we are all of a sudden the truth police with a capital T and a capital P, and we, and we want to know words and have them at the ready so that we can go around bopping people on the head with our Bibles and, and using fancy words like justification and redemption and salvation and sanctification. And, you know, that, that, that doesn't always communicate as well as I think some Christians think it does. We want to have these truths about an infinite God be in our hearts and in our minds in a way that we can grasp it and have it at the ready for us. That's one of the goals for us in Theosaurus. 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, states some of this truth about being stewards of, of God's word it says this this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards caretakers keepers of the mysteries of God keep that up there for just a second if you would please you see communicating accurately the truth about an infinite God to a sinful and finite world isn't just about throwing fancy words at people It's about becoming caretakers of a profound mystery that a holy, majestic, infinite, perfect God has brought us sinful, rebellious humanity to himself. That's a mystery. And so communicating that infinite truth to a limited, sinful world is not easy if you don't have the words. If you don't have the words at the ready to communicate the truth of the gospel. Let me illustrate like this. You can go ahead and take that off. Thanks. What if, you tried, what if you tried to communicate the gospel using just words from a McDonald's placemat? No, really, what if you tried to do that? You'd kind of be a dork, wouldn't you? Well, we did that. Um, a preacher friend of mine and I sat with a McDonald's placemat and tried to describe the gospel... With McDonald's words. He did most of the work, but I did a little editing here and there. This is is the McGospel. The McGospel is this. The hot, big, and tasty information found for you is from the one derived from none before. The one derived from none is the supplier of resources of nutrition for each of you. The one publishes, sorry, there was no better word. The one publishes, I'm loving you. The one publishes, I'm serving you. The one publishes, I'm not snack size loving you. I'm large ranch size loving you. (laughs) I'm deluxe, premium, big and tasty, triple thick shake loving you. I like this line, the one wrap you in loving. How about, how about loving the one? In season, the one saturated, the one in you packaging. The one is derived from pre-consumer materials and, and changed formulations for you. The one whipped for you. The one on hot McGriddles for you. <laughs> in hot McSkillet for you throughout. If you need a, you need a good line for, for your wife, just say, you know, like, you know, in hot McSkillet for you. The one is iced for you. The one reversed you, information and packaging. I'm not even sure what that means either. The one recycled for you, learn it. The one appear for you, the one publishes, I'm not cooking you in oil. <laughs> You've never heard grace quite said like that, have you? I'm not cooking you in oil. The power aid found from the one and recommended for you. <clears throat> you didn't know that was in McDonald's placement, did you? Yeah. I don't know what we would have done if McDonald's current slogan wasn't, I'm loving it. We'd be hurting. It doesn't exactly communicate very well, does it? We want to study some of these terms so that we can understand and take to heart what they mean and describe the gospel well. So what about baptism? It's a word Many of us have grown up hearing literally thousands and thousands of times. We know what it means, at least as far as a ceremony. We We know that we do it here in worship. And as a response to the gospel, as a response to becoming a part of the church, people come and they are baptized. But when we use the word baptism and we talk about being baptized, we want to know what it means. And so we're going to focus on this word, baptism, this, this word's essential meaning today by looking at Christ's baptism. I want, you, I want you to feel in your bones the force of this word and its function here at Christ's baptism so that when you say it and experience it, you'll understand it as a pledge of allegiance to God, as a, as a testimony of transition in your life, and as a demonstration of humble service well it's time for the nerdy word definition now when we're using the english word baptized this is in your outlines there on the handout when we're using the english word baptized we usually mean the greek word baptizo b-a-p-t-i-z-o as you can see in your sermon handouts there it's a little complicated so you might want to follow it there That baptizo is the intensive form, I-N-T-E-N-S-I-V. It's the intensive form of the root word babto. You can see that there in your outline. Babto simply means to dip or to immerse. Everybody following? Clear as mud? Okay. Um, It's pretty clear on the handouts uh, in front of you, um, in case you're thoroughly confused by what I've told you. Um, We know... That the meaning of baptizo, which is usually the word that we mean when we say that, when we talk about baptism, we know that it's total immersion. It's, it's all the way under the water dunking because of some of the usage of that word outside of the Bible. The clearest example, frankly, that we know of, is a poem about a pickle. It's a poem about a pickle. It's from the Greek poet and physician named Nicander, N-I-C-A-N-D-E-R. He lived about 200 B.C., and he tells in this poem a recipe about making pickles. It's helpful because he uses both of these words we've just talked about, babto and baptizo. Nicander says that in order to make a pickle, you take the vegetable, and it should first be dipped, or or babto, just dipped in boiling water as a cleansing mechanism, so that it's ready to be made into something else. You babto it, you cleanse it, you dip it. But then you take it and you baptizo it. You baptizo the vegetable in vinegar. You fully put it down and let it sit there and stay there. And don't worry, that's not how we practice baptism here. <laughs> Those of you who are guests are like, is that what happens here? The first change, babto, is temporary. The second, baptizo, is a permanent change. Both verbs concern immersing of vegetables in a solution. But the second makes it into a pickle. And we don't make you into pickles either. When used in the New Testament, this word more often refers to this second kind of union and identification with Christ. Mark 16 says, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. That's union with Christ. It's it's that becoming a pickle, not just being cleansed kind of baptism. So let's look at Matthew 3 here. And the use of that kind of baptism in Jesus' own life in Matthew 3, 13 through 7. We're going to focus on his baptism as an initiation of his ministry as Messiah. Jesus' baptism is his initiation. It's it's the way he began his ministry as the anointed one in public. Let's go ahead and read together Matthew 3, 13 through 17 again here. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. That is John the Baptist. He consented. Verse 16, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now think about this for a second. Jesus is the perfect Sinless Messiah. He is the anointed one Israel had waited and waited and waited for. Perfect, sinless, holy Messiah. Why does Jesus need to get baptized? Let me answer that question right off the bat. It's basically an easy answer. Because for Jesus as he demonstrates his baptism for us. His baptism is not about doing away with sin in his life. And he models for us what it means to be initiated into a public ministry, to be identified with him in a way that we picture in our baptism. We'll look more about that later. But look at verses 13 and 14 in your Bibles here. 13 and 14 say this. Jesus came... To be baptized by John the Baptist. But John would have prevented him. He deterred him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but, but you come to me? You see, because baptism implies that a person has repented, because baptism replies, uh, implies that a person has repented, John the Baptist, he balks at the idea of, of baptizing Jesus. I mean, Jesus doesn't need to repent. So John makes the same kind of mistake that we often make. Assuming that Jesus is baptized to to do something like do away with his sin. You see, even we, we don't get baptized to do away with the sin as if the waters change that state. But we are baptized as a picture of having repented from and been saved from sin by grace and Christ's work on the cross. Water doesn't wash away sin. The blood of Christ washes away sin. But the waters of baptism are a beautiful picture of that cleansing from sin in a way that even Jesus, sinless Jesus, demonstrates by going under. Think about that. Jesus wanted so badly to model the Christian life for us so clearly That even he was baptized. He verbalizes this desire in verse 15. Jesus answers John and says, Let's do this now. It's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. So why did Jesus get dunked? Why did he go under? Look at verse 15 again. Like we already said, Jesus has not come to confess sin, but to fulfill all righteousness. He wishes to obey the moral commands and demands of God's will. Even though Jesus didn't have anything to prove, he wants to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that he wants to complete everything that forms part of that relationship of obedience to God. And so he says, let's do this now, for it's fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 21, in the New International Version, it says this: the pledge, baptism is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's making a pledge of allegiance. To God. That's the next blank there on your sheet. He's making a pledge of allegiance to God. He's declaring openly and publicly that he is dedicated so fully to God's will that he will go ahead and be baptized. You see, pledging your allegiance is sort of like this. You know when a big-time professional athlete like Peyton Manning or, or LeBron James, when they commit to a team, they sign a contract which binds them to that team. Following that signing of the contract, there's usually a, a press conference to announce that newly formed allegiance. What happens at that press conference is they make the announcement, they, they go out in public, and, and people take pictures. It might be on TV, but someone from the organization holds up the team jersey with the player's name on it, and, and everybody you know, says, Yay, the Messiah has come to save our team. Um, It's a public declaration of that player's commitment to that team. Now, now being saved is sort of like the signing of the contract, it's a rather private ceremony. You don't really watch the pro athlete sign the contract. But baptism is like a press conference, it's the public announcement of your newly committed allegiance to Christ. And to his team, the church. So here, there's a sense in which Jesus is holding a press conference to pledge his public allegiance to God. Secondly, Jesus' baptism, as we learn here, was a testimony of transition in his life. That's the next part of the handout there. It's a testimony of transition in his life. The act of Jesus' baptism announced his change of purpose. Up until this time, the events in Jesus' life are really pretty sketchy. We don't know a whole lot. We don't, we don't have a lot of information about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Most of what we know is that he faithfully and, and humbly grew under the authority of his parents and, and learned the trade of being a carpenter. Before this point, there are no records of miracles and preaching. So Jesus' baptism now announces a transition. It is so significant an event that it's one of the few that is recorded by all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Job. Just making sure you're awake. I know that the fourth Gospel is Jeremiah. So this transition happens here to announce his public ministry. In Luke, the third chapter, immediately following the baptism, it says this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. It points out that this is where Jesus begins his public ministry. In fact, here in Matthew, chapter 4, Jesus is led straight into the wilderness after this, where he fasted for 40 days and nights, and he prepared for his earthly ministry. So for Jesus... His baptism meant that the carpenter's tools were being set aside. And he was officially declaring himself to be a messenger from God. And it's interesting that when John the Baptist introduces him here, he doesn't say, here's Jesus of Nazareth, that carpenter. He doesn't say anything about his trade. He says in John the first chapter, behold, the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world? Baptism was Jesus' benchmark of transition. Our baptism is like that too. Our baptism should mean a transition of a purpose. 2 Corinthians 5 says that when we, we come to Christ, we are a new creation. The old is past. That word there means the old's dead, it's passed away, the new has come. Baptism represents that transition in our life, too. No longer is this world and what it has to offer us the most important thing. It's a transition to the things that God cares about, to a ministry, to publicly declaring our faith. Romans 6 says that we are buried with Christ through baptism and raised to new life. There's a twofold purpose here. There was a professor from a seminary in John City that said, The baptistry is both a tomb and a womb. It's a tomb where we die to the old person. For some of us, that mean the old that may mean the old ways of what we lived for and what we cared about. And he said it's a womb where we are born into the family of God. What happens when we are born into the family of God in baptism means that we transition from our BC, our before Christ life, to to an after his death life that changes the reason we exist, the reason we live, the things for which we desire our resources and efforts to be directed. It's a transition. It was for Jesus. Do you think Jesus needed to mark that transition with baptism for any reason other than to model for us what it means to be humble and to serve. I don't think so. There was a machinist that worked at the Ford Motor Company soon after it was built. Over the next few years, this machinist uh, sort of borrowed various tools and parts from the company, which he never had returned. And while this practice was not exactly condoned, It was more or less tolerated by the management because they all did the same thing and everybody knew with those old cars that you always had to have a part or a tool ready. But this machinist yielded his life to Christ and he was baptized and he took that change seriously as a transition point in his life. So the very next morning after he was baptized, he arrived at work loaded down with tools and parts that he had taken and, and borrowed from the company over the years. He explained to his foreman that he had taken these things, that he, that he knew that it was wrong, but he'd hoped he'd be forgiven, and, and he gave testimony of his conversion. Well, the foreman was so impressed that he wired Henry Ford himself. Ford was off in Europe, and so he explained the situation in detail by wiring Henry Ford. Immediately Henry Ford wired back. Do this at once. Dam up the Detroit River and baptize the entire city. <laughs> Listen, when you come to Christ, when, when we come to Christ, there's a change that's supposed to take place. And it's a change that results in a transition of life, of life's purpose and a meaning, a reason we exist the things for which we we give our time and money and efforts. And even for Jesus, it marked a testimony of transition in his life. So we've seen a a pledge of allegiance to God, a, a a testimony of his transition in life. But thirdly, and maybe most importantly, Jesus' baptism is a demonstration of humble servanthood. It's a demonstration of humble service. Jesus' humility is clearly seen in the act of baptism here. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's crazy. Did you know that John was out in the wilderness about 60 miles away from where Jesus lived? And so Jesus walked 60 miles to be baptized by John. Sixty miles. I know lots of folks who don't drive to church to worship it a few times a year, let alone walk 60 miles to be baptized. And when he got there, he sees John dunking people in the water. He could have said, I don't need this. I grew up a good Jewish boy. I went to the synagogue every Saturday. I held up every commandment and law. I am sinless for crying out loud. I'm 30 years old. I don't need to be baptized. It doesn't make sense now. It would be silly and embarrassing. But Jesus didn't say anything like that. The one who came to serve waded out into the river and allowed John the Baptist to put him under the water. And the Son of God, perfect, sinless, holy Son of God, came up and his hair was all wet. His clothes were matted to his body. He went from being well-groomed and respectable to unkempt and drenched. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus continued to demonstrate that kind of servanthood his whole life. When you go through the Gospels, you can't help but see how willingly and humbly he served. He associated with sinners, even though the religious leaders found them repulsive. He touched lepers, even though the people found them to be unclean. He washed dirty feet, even though his friends, in their pride, didn't think it necessary. And our commitment, our commitment to Jesus as Lord of our lives, should demonstrate a releasing of our pride and an embracing of humble service, just like it did for Jesus. You know, it's it's sort of humbling to be baptized, to be immersed in water. It's not humiliating, but it is humbling. You can't even baptize yourself. It's a passive act that someone else must do to you. The fact is that it's that humbling that is one of the primary reasons that people object to it. All of our lives, we work at developing this sort of certain dignity about us, we learn how to walk and to dress, and to speak so that others will be impressed with us. We learn that certain mannerisms damage our image so that we avoid them. From birth, we've been taught to protect our pride, to preserve our dignity, to be keenly aware of what everybody else thinks about us. And yet, here comes perfect Sinless, infinite, holy God in the flesh. Saying things like, The greatest among you must be servant of all. I came not to be served, but to serve. I want you to feel the weight of baptism being something that initiates us to that kind of a life, just like it did for Jesus. There's a preacher in Kentucky that tells this story about humble service and what it means to be a part of the people of God. He tells of a time that he went golfing in Hawaii. You've probably heard of this preacher. His name is Bob Russell. He's a preacher in Kentucky. He was golfing in Hawaii. I'm sure some uh, friend took him there. He said he came to a hole that puts fear into any golfer with a slice. Can I get a witness? There was a busy street just over the fence on his right, and over and over as he approached the hole, he told himself, don't slice the ball, don't slice the ball, don't slice the ball. And, of course, you know what he did. He sliced the ball right into the street and directly toward an incoming, oncoming Rolls-Royce. Somehow the ball mercifully missed that Rolls Royce. It bounced in front of it and went over and landed in a yard. It was bad enough that he was going to have to take a two-stroke penalty, but then the car stopped and the driver got out. Well, he started laughing. And, and the driver went over and just stood by this ball sitting there in the yard. And, and, and this preacher, Bob, walked up and he just, he just knew he was going to get chewed out. But instead, when he got there... The man said, you know, just as we were driving down here, I was telling my friends in the car that I, I played golf here on this very hole yesterday. And I hit this ball across the road and did almost the exact same thing that you did, almost hit a car. And, and my friends in the car were, were making fun of me and riding me unmercifully. And so when, when I drive by and you do this, I was so thankful. <laughs> it made me feel so much better. Bob says this, there stood the two of us, never met each other before, standing with our hands on each other's shoulders, laughing. You know, there was this rich multimillionaire living in Hawaii, but the thing that brought us together was not our accomplishments or our great feats, but it was our failure. It was our failure and the humility to admit it. Friends, that's what this is about. As fellow travelers through this life, we are not united by achievement or decorum, the right words to say, how well you do anything. We are united as the body of Christ in humility and willingness to come to Jesus and to say like he says, We've come to serve one another. To serve one another in the name of Christ. Because becoming a Christian begins by humbly coming to Jesus and saying, I am a sinner, and I know that only you can help. And it requires a continued life of submission, like Jesus demonstrated in the waters of baptism. Friends, if you want to be a slave to the one who came not to be served but to serve, and to live your life as a reflection of that humble service, then we ask as we stand to sing in just a moment that you would come forward and walk in the footsteps of Jesus by being baptized today.